Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie and with me tonight, as always, is Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm doing pretty good for this cold winter's morning. How are you? I'm pretty good. Tonight's episode, we're going to jump right in. It's about the murder of Chandra Levy, a Washington, D.C. intern who was missing and then later found murdered. It was a very high-profile case here in the U.S. at the time. But it fell out of the headlines due to some even bigger profile stories. And while most people I talk to know the basics of the case, many don't know how it was resolved. Some people didn't actually know her remains had ever been found. So while it'll be a familiar case on the surface, there's a lot lesser known facts that we can discuss. And I want to thank Kathy for suggesting this episode. And I also want to recommend the book I read on the case. It's called Finding Chandra. Highly recommend it. If you want even more details, it's very clearly written. It's very well written. And I give it high marks all around. Chandra was one of two children of Bob and Susan Levy. Bob and Susan are the adventurous sort. When Bob finished medical school, they picked a few locations that fit his career path. He specialized in oncology and they wanted a place they could feel good about raising a family. So they came up with a few places and they put them on slips of paper and they drew one of them out of a hat and that's where they went. And that is how they ended up in Modesto, California, where they built a life together for themselves and for their children, Chandra and Adam. They wanted to show their kids the world, so they traveled extensively. Chandra, though, was more cautious and quiet than her parents were. One family story tells of her staying in the car at Yosemite because she was afraid of the bears. Maybe these trips and pushing Chandra out of her comfort zone paid off. Because while she was always a little on the quiet side, she was independent and she was driven. She was considered a mediator and a peacemaker in her school. She went to a school that was racially diverse, but it was charged. And it's likely because of all of her world travels, she was more comfortable with diverse cultures. She started volunteering at the Modesto Police Department while she was still in high school. At San Francisco University, she earned a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. She then went to graduate school at the University of Southern California and sought a degree in public administration. She did internships with both the mayor of Los Angeles and the governor of California before she applied for a paid internship with the Federal Bureau of Prisons in Washington, D.C. She moved out there in September of 2000 and started her internship in October. And it wasn't long after starting her internship that she met Gary Condit. A friend of hers from the same graduate program was in D.C., but had been unable to secure the internship required to complete the program. The friend had been advised to go meet with her congressional representatives from their state or district for assistance in finding placement. This friend, also being from the Modesto area, asked Chandra to come with her, and that's how 23-year-old Chandra met the handsome 52-year-old, married with adult children, US representative. While Condon had never publicly stated if his relationship with Chandra was sexual, claiming privacy reasons, it's hard to believe it was anything but. His DNA matched a sample taken from semen and underwear in her apartment, so, you know, it got there somehow. Having a secret affair in D.C. isn't that hard when your spouse is across the country, as Condence was. His wife remained in California while he had an apartment in D.C. And this isn't uncommon in case anyone was wondering. Not everyone wants to uproot their family for what may be only two years. And thanks to the invention of aeroplanes, many commute to D.C. for a week and then go home on the weekends. They also have built-in district work days where they go home to work in their districts on the grounds level. Now, it's believed the relationship started a few weeks after they first met. It was definitely in full swing by Thanksgiving, at least on Chandra's side, because she spent Thanksgiving with her aunt. She was close to this aunt and confided in her that she was dating a congressman who she hoped to one day marry and had plans to go away on a trip with him. It's also believed that Chandra wasn't the only woman in Condit's life at this time frame. However, there is no evidence she ever found out about any other woman. 
We're just going to take a quick break before we get into the timeline leading up to her disappearance. We're going to take this break for a word from a sponsor. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Finding great talent can be tough. Thankfully, with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job, better than anyone else. That's what makes ZipRecruiter different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't rely on job candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter find a quality job candidate in just 24 hours. There's no juggling of emails or calls to your office. There's no juggling of emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate and manage candidates all in one place. With ZipRecruiter easy-to-use dashboard, find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, Insight listeners can post jobs to ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash site. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash site. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash site. Sometime in the middle of January 2001, Chandra called her landlord. She told him that she was considering moving in with her boyfriend. She called him back a few weeks later to tell him that the plan changed and she would be staying in the apartment. Then in April, she traveled to her aunt's house for Passover. This was the same aunt she saw at Thanksgiving. This time, she let Condit's name slip and showed her a bracelet that Condit had bought for her. And she gave even more details, like how they kept their relationship secret by either staying at his apartment or going out, but outside of D.C. where they wouldn't be recognized. If Chandra arrived at his apartment and someone else was in the elevator, she was supposed to get off on a different floor to kind of cover it up. And Chandra was willing to do all this because she was in love. She thought they had a future together. Around the same time, Chandra's mom, Susan, knew her daughter had made friends with a congressman and possibly suspected more. And so she mentioned it to a gardener they had doing some work for them back in Modesto. The man told Chandra's mom a story about his daughter being in a similar situation and warned Susan that it might go too far. His daughter had gotten wrapped up in an affair with a representative out there and it didn't end well. And this representative happened to be Gary Condit. Now things started clicking with Susan and so she asked Chandra straight out if she was dating Gary Condit. She relayed the story the gardener had told her and Chandra, yeah, she basically told her to mind her own business. The kind of thing a grown woman would tell her mom, nosing into her business. When Chandra saw her parents in mid-April in Hershey, Pennsylvania for her birthday, she told her mom that she actually asked Gary about this and he explained it and everything was cleared up. She didn't go into any more detail. After Chandra disappeared, though, this man and his daughter were interviewed by the FBI, and he told them what he knew about the affair. He also told the story to the Washington Post. And then later, he recanted the entire thing, saying he made up the whole story. Now, I can kind of see him making up the story for attention or, you know, 15 minutes of fame after Chandra disappeared. But why would he have made this up a full two to three weeks before Chandra disappeared? That doesn't make sense, but he did recant it, so I guess we don't know. In late April, the First Lady was hosting a luncheon for congressional spouses, and Gary Condit's wife was going to be in Washington, D.C. for that. So April 24 was the last time Condit and Chandra were able to get together. She told him her internship had ended. Technically, it was only supposed to go to December because it was a semester deal, she had it extended, but it ended rather suddenly in April. Now, a few reasons have been given for this. One was that she had completed her coursework in December and she could only stay on for 120 days past that and that they decided not to hire her. Another reason given was that she was terminated for violating the chain of command when asking for a raise. 
but regardless of the reason, her job was over. She was moving back to California, attending her graduation in May, and then hopefully moving back to DC eventually. On April 28, Chandra let her landlord know she was out of work and intended to vacate the apartment on May 5th or 6th. On April 29, she left a voicemail with her aunt saying she was packing up to head home since her internship had ended. She also said she had big news to tell her. Now, our aunt did not immediately call her back and we are left to speculate what that big news was. There has been some speculation that perhaps she was pregnant and we're not just talking about internet speculation either. Journalist Connie Chung would later ask it directly to Gary Condent in what is an absolutely cringeworthy interview, but there isn't any evidence of that. The news could have been pretty much anything. We only have Condit's version of what they talked about when he saw her on the 24th of April. Is it possible he made a promise to move in with her when she came back to DC? Did he give her a timeline of leaving his wife? I mean, it could be almost anything. The last confirmed sighting of Chandra was on April 30th when she cancelled her gym membership. At a quarter past four on the morning of May 1st, someone called 911 to report screams outside near Chandra's apartment building. Now, this probably had nothing to do with Chandra because of her computer activity later that morning, but it is something to note. While no one saw Chandra after she left the gym the evening before, her computer was used to surf the internet and email people on May 1st. Between 10 and 11 in the morning, She had looked up ticket prices to fly back home and had emailed some of them to her mom. There was then a search on Rock Creek Park and the weather that day, and she signed off around 1230 in the afternoon. This isn't exactly proof she was the one doing all this computer work, but it does seem odd that someone else would do it. I mean, maybe some activity would throw the scent off if this was the murderer trying to make it look like she was still alive that morning. But emailing her mom and then reading online articles for three hours lingering at the crime scene, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So it's almost surely Chandra in my view. On May 2nd, the landlord called Chandra to figure out what day she was leaving. As she had left it, it would likely be the 5th or the 6th, but he wanted to know which day. And he got no answer. So he tried her again the next day when she didn't call him back. But again, same thing, no answer. Over the weekend, no one could get in touch with Chandra. So on Saturday, May 5th, her parents reported her missing to the police. They felt like the police brushed it off a bit, but the police did go to her apartment on May 6th for a welfare check. The apartment was in good condition, no sign of a struggle. Her suitcases were out and in the process of being packed. Her fridge was nearly empty except for a small amount of leftovers and some Reese's peanut butter cups, which were her favorite candy. Some items were on the floor, but nothing that looked out of place, especially as she was in the middle of preparing for a move. As is standard practice, the police officer left a business card behind for Chandra, asking her to call in when she returned home. Feeling the brush off, Chandra's parents decided to do what little investigating they could do from California. Shonda was still on their cell phone plan, so they were able to get her call log and look for anything out of the ordinary. Susan noticed multiple calls to the same DC area number, and several of them were late in the evening and in nighttime hours. She called the phone number and got the voicemail of Gary Condit. They eventually got in touch with Condit, leaving a message at his home with his wife. When he returned the call, Bob introduced himself, mentioned that Condit's number came up on his daughter's phone bills and she was missing, and asked could he help, did he know her, did he know where she could be. Condit said he met her a few times and he was going to make some calls to see what he could do. It was later found that he left her two voicemails in a, the day or two after she went missing, asking what she was up to and had she left for California already. The Levies told the police they thought their daughter was having an affair with Condent. When he was called, he told the police the same he told the Levies, that he knew Chandra, their conversations were basically about career advice, and he didn't know where she was. He agreed to make a statement, so on May 9, he talked to the police. 
When pushed, he admitted that Chandra had been at his apartment and that she'd spent the night. When he was asked directly about sex, he said they could go ahead and infer whatever, but he wasn't going down that path. On May 10, the Levies announced a reward of $25,000 for any information leading to Chandra's whereabouts. Gary Condit added 10000 to that fund, saying, Chandra is a great person and a good friend, and we hope she's found safe and sound. That seems like a really nice gesture, but it also became the media's first moment of, well, what's going on here? Before long, the scandal would take over the media, but we'll get into that later. On May 10th, police searched Chandra's apartment with a search warrant. The stuff in her apartment didn't give very many clues on the whole. I've seen references to out-of-place items like her comforter on the floor near the door. But to me, she was packing. She may have been ready to pack it, to bring it to the laundromat to wash it before she packed it, or she was going to donate it to a thrift store. I think when people are organizing and packing, everything looks out of place because it is. Uh, Maybe I just have past trauma from moving, but it's chaos. Things are everywhere. The odd thing to me is that her cell phone, credit cards, and driver's license were all in the apartment, and those are things that I tend to bring with me whenever I leave the house, and I think most people do. But if she was heading out for a walk or a jog in the park and didn't want to carry a lot of extras, maybe she would have left them behind. She normally preferred using a treadmill for exercise, but she had just canceled her gym membership, so the park may have been her best option. Or maybe she just left her house not planning to be gone terribly long, so she left those things behind. It was reported that her keys were the only item missing from her apartment, but it later came out that a gold ring with her initials was also missing, and she very often wore this ring. Also, it's been widely reported in the media that that gold bracelet Condit had given Chandra was missing as well. But in 2007, the police returned the items of Chandra's that had been taken into evidence, and the gold bracelet was in that box. They showed it to Chandra's aunt, and she was able to identify that it was the bracelet that Chandra had showed her. The police made two missteps early on in the investigation. Chandra's apartment building had multiple cameras. However, they were only stored for seven days. If she last left her building on May 1st, the recordings would have been gone around May 8th. The police had been at her building on the 6th, but they didn't ask for them. When they did ask for them, they were already gone. Now, did Chandra leave on her own? What was she wearing? What time did she leave? All of this information sat in the apartment complex for seven days, and then it was gone forever. The other big mistake was that the police officer tried to search her browser history to find her last internet searches. It's unclear how this happened, but he wasn't a trained computer tech and the hard drive became corrupted while he was using it. It would take weeks before they were able to recover the information on the computer. And because they misunderstood a search, they thought she'd searched for a specific location in Rock Creek Park, Kingle Mansion. That made many speculate that she'd planned to meet somewhere near there, and the police spent time searching specifically in that area. Had they read it correctly, they would have known she was on the Entertainment Guide website that happened to list that location at the top, but that she actually clicked to see the trail maps. So let's get back to Condit for a minute. His movements on May 1st and 2nd were really important here, and they were mostly accounted for at a second interview with police. At 12.30 on the 1st, he had a meeting with Dick Cheney, who was then the Vice President of the United States. The meeting was finished before 1 p.m. Then he spent the rest of the afternoon in his office working before he spent the evening on the floor of the house and then out with his wife, who was still in town after the First Lady's luncheon. There have been questions raised about the strength of this alibi. It has him essentially working in his office for four or so hours with the only people I assume can vouch for him are his staff who are people who are on his payroll. If you believe Chandra went to the park to meet someone after logging off her computer, this is the exact window we're concerned with. To be fair, a flimsy alibi doesn't mean no alibi, because I'd say I'd be in trouble probably 80% of the time if I needed an alibi. I'm someone who spends a few hours a day working alone in an office, so I wouldn't have a great alibi most days. 
No one has come forward to say that they saw Condent leave his office, saw him walking around the park, or anything that places him outside of his office either. On July 10th, Condit consented to a search of his apartment, and the police did a forensic search. They were looking for hairs, blood, signs of a crime. The search took a few hours, and they left with some evidence envelopes, but nothing incriminating was reported. Well, one thing was found elsewhere that raised some eyebrows. Someone who was familiar with Condit saw him, a few hours before the search, throwing away a watch box in a trash can behind a fast food restaurant. The man pulled the item out and reported it to police, and they were able to retrieve it and trace it back to a gift that Condit had been given by one of his other girlfriends years previously. So why did he throw away a watch box that had nothing to do with Chandra? And I think the answer here is that Condit was incredibly worried about losing his political career. Being a conservative Democrat who pretty publicly said that President Bill Clinton should come clean about an affair he was having with a Washington intern, being tied to multiple women who were not his wife was not going to do him any political favors. But worrying about that image backfired on him and continued to because he just looked even more suspicious. If he threw that watch box at that location, what else did he dispose of before that search and where did he put it? And in all fairness, he brought all of the suspicion on himself. The police were pressuring Condit to take a polygraph. No lawyer would advise his client to take one, and that's exactly what happened here. His attorney said, look, no way. So then the media was throwing questions at him everywhere he went. You know, why don't you take the polygraph? I know we've talked about this so many times here and in our awesome discussion group, We've talked about not finding it suspicious and that we would likely wouldn't take the polygraph ourselves, basically due to their accuracy issues alone, let alone so many other reasons. But Chandra's disappearance was being tried in the media and Condit was weighing his options both from a legal standpoint and a public relations standpoint. So he and his attorney came up with a good idea. Condit would take a private polygraph with a leading expert in administrating polygraphs. This was a guy who taught FBI agents how to administer the test. The thinking is that if Condit failed, they would pretend it never happened. They wouldn't be legally required to disclose a private polygraph, but if he passed, then they could say he cooperated. And by using the leading expert, they didn't have to worry about the credentials or ethics of the examiner being questioned. Now, Condit did pass the polygraph two days after the search of his apartment, but the police department refused to accept it. They wanted to do their own with their own questions and their own protocol. At this point, Condit had sat down for three interviews with local police and prosecutors and one with the FBI. His wife had sat down for one interview. He agreed to have his apartment searched. He gave a DNA sample. He took and passed a polygraph that was administered by an expert who in all likely was more skilled than the police examiner, though with only questions directly related to Chandra's disappearance and his involvement and knowledge of events, the police would have had more questions that they wanted to ask. He was continually perceived as not being cooperative in the media. Some of this was he's doing. He refused to just come out and say he slept around on his wife, that he disposed of the evidence of one of his long over affairs. He did an interview where he somehow thought he'd get away with not admitting his relationship with Chandra and still have people believe him on everything else. A public relations expert, Gary Condit, wasn't, but he cooperated quite a bit more than it seems he was given credit for. So back to Chandra and the searches for her. A lot of tips came in, as is expected with such a high-profile case. Police followed up on a lot of them, There was even one from a psychic saying that Chandra's remains were concealed in the basement storage of the Smithsonian. Police looked and nothing was found there. Some police do believe in psychic visions, and some believe that people with information may call claiming to be a psychic so they aren't connecting themselves directly to the crime, but they can still unload their information. So while some skeptics may scoff at the police following leads from psychics, it isn't always because the police aren't skeptical enough. Sometimes the tip seems plausible enough that it's worth checking out 
regardless of how the person says they came across the information. One tip came in that Chandra died in a botched abortion, and that may have been the origin of the story that still persists that she was pregnant when she disappeared. But like Ali said, there's no evidence of that. No proof she bought a home pregnancy test or went to the doctor or had plans to see an obstetrician when she was in California, and she didn't tell anyone she was pregnant. It's nothing except speculation. Her apartment building and the neighborhood was canvassed. The towpath at the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal was searched with cadaver dog teams, as well as searches at a car impound lot and other wooded areas. But in what would be seen as an oversight later on, cadaver dogs were not used in the entirety of the Rock Creek Park search. While the case stayed an open and active investigation by the police, it soon lost its place in the media on September 11, 2001. And as we know, that's when four planes were hijacked in the United States. Two flew into the World Trade Center towers in New York City, one into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and one crashed into a field in Pennsylvania when the passengers became aware of the other attacks, and then they fought back against their hijackers. As most of our listeners know, the attacks of 9-11 dominated most of the news for quite a long time. But on May 22, 2002, Chandra's case was back in the news when her remains were found in Rock Creek Park by a man walking off trails there. Now, this was a regular pastime of Hayes. The park was large and relatively isolated compared to the rest of the metro area, and he often went through the woods for some solitude and peace. Chandra was found 79 yards, or about 72 metres, off the trail down an embankment. And this was part of the park where they did not bring the cadaver dogs through. But that wasn't the only mistake in the search. The search ordered was a search 100 yards, or about 91 metres, off trails. But that was somehow miscommunicated or misunderstood to be 100 yards off the roads. Since Chandra was off the trail and not a road, they didn't search that far for her. Had they either had the cadaver dogs on the trail or had searched as intended 100 yards off the trail, they would have found her in July of 2001. But 10 additional months of exposure destroyed whatever forensic evidence there may have been. In an odd coincidence, that very morning, the Levies appeared on the Oprah Winfrey show from their home in Modesto to talk about the one-year mark of Chandra's disappearance. They were really trying to get their daughter's case back into the media because exposure like that, it brings in tips. After the interview, which was done quite early in the morning, Susan went and laid down in Chandra's bed and dozed off. She woke at 8.30 to the phone ringing. It was the DC police calling her to let her know that they believed they found Chandra's remains. Along with Chandra's skeletal remains, they found her clothing, which is what made them pretty sure from the start it was her. A grey t-shirt from her Alamata was among the items. Also found was a cassette player, a sports bra, and black stretch pants with the legs knotted at the ends. Later on, they also found her shoes. Dental records confirmed the remains were Chandra's. The autopsy could not confirm a cause of death. While it's possible that Chandra was killed elsewhere and dumped in the park, the evidence led investigators to be fairly confident that Chandra was killed at the park and concealed down the embankment. Chandra's story was back in the media in a pretty big way at this point until October of 2002 when the Beltway snipers started terrorizing the D.C. metro area. And if you want to learn more about these sniper attacks, I recommend the Generation Y podcast's recent episode about the case. The media played, and still plays a big role in this case, the Levies and the Condits both lived with the media camped out in front for months, both in 2001 and again in 2002. Many people believe Gary Condit is guilty, just from what they heard in the media, though many things turned out to be false. In a rush to be the first one out with the latest update in the case, they often didn't bother to wait to make sure the information was actually true. The first false story is that Condit had recently broken up with Chandra, but everyone who saw her leading up to her disappearance, including those at the gym the night before, said she was in good spirits and upbeat. She had been initially upset about the end of her internship, but 
She was looking forward to her graduation and kind of figuring out her next step and getting back to D.C. She didn't act like someone who just got dumped by the man she wanted to spend the rest of her life with. Another false story was that Carolyn Condit, Gary's wife, had confronted Chandra while she was in D.C. and they had a physical fight. Now, this story was so untrue that Carolyn did not take it lying down. She sued the National Enquirer for $10 million for printing it. The suit was settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. Another false story is that Chandra had made a series of frantic calls to Condit leading up to her disappearance. It appears more likely from the reports that she actually called him twice the night before she disappeared, and he didn't answer. With his wife in town, I think we could guess why he didn't answer her calls. And one story that ran on NBC said that Chandra was seen after she disappeared at a 7-Eleven on their security footage. And this was incorrect information. It was only up for about two hours before they backed away from it. But you'll still see it repeated in comment sections on the internet as though it really happened. When Shonja was found, investigators actually recognized the scene a bit from two other attacks that happened in the park. The first of these two attacks happened on May 14, so just two weeks after Chandra went missing. A local journalist named Hallie was in the park for an evening jog. As she went through the parking lot to get to the trail, she noticed a young Hispanic man with a slight build staring at her. She said it made her uncomfortable, but that wasn't the first time. Men looking at her was something she was used to, and yes, some stared long enough to make her uncomfortable. She was mildly irritated and maybe just even a bit annoyed, but she continued on. During her jog, it was getting a little darker as the sun went down the treetops, and she was getting to the more isolated part of the park. She picked up a stick just in case. Maybe the uncomfortable staring from the man in the parking lot heightened that feeling. But regardless, she continued on her jog with a stick in hand and she was on guard a bit. She heard someone sprint up towards her and she assumed at first it was a jogger who was training. But when she turned to look, he had fallen back. She continued up the hill, but when she slowed down to recover from the climb, she felt hands on her shoulders. It was a man she had seen in the parking lot, and he had a knife. He pulled her to the ground, and her self-defense training kicked in. She went right for his eyes. Though she did miss, but she got his mouth. She managed to dig her fingers into the soft palate under the tongue. He bit down on her hand, and that was enough to leave a significant bite mark on her hand, but he let go of her, so it worked. She had hurt him. She got up and got the heck out of there, and she reported it as an attempted rape. It wasn't until July 1st that the second attack occurred. This woman named Christy was jogging with her fiancé. He often jogged faster, so he would eventually pull ahead and then they'd meet at the end. This was just their normal jogging routine. On this evening, he was eventually ahead of her when someone grabbed her from behind and pulled her down and off the trail. There was a drop off the trail and they rolled down the hill a bit. Again, a knife came out but she didn't see it more than a split second before he had it against her neck and was covering her mouth with his hand. She said she had a surge of adrenaline, and though moments before she felt like she didn't have the strength to fight, she started fighting hard. He held her tighter the more she struggled, so she suddenly stopped struggling and waited until he loosened his grip a little, which he did, probably thinking she had given up. She took the chance, and she fought so hard that he lost his hold of her. She got up and started running. Instead of chasing her, he actually fled in the other direction. Christy flagged down a driver and reported the incident, again as an attempted rape. Both Hallie and Christy had Walkmans and diamond rings, and the man did not attempt to take either of them, which makes you assume it wasn't a robbery. With her description, officers in a patrol car spotted the man fairly quickly. His general physical description matched a young Hispanic man with a slight build, and his clothing matched. He was also wet and covered with dirt and leaf debris. He was identified as Ingmar Guandique, a 19-year-old man from El Salvador. He wasn't questioned in depth until the next day when they had a translator for him. Guandique spoke little English. Just about a year and a half earlier, he had entered the U.S. illegally, seeking a life away from the poverty he had grown up with. 
He grew up during the Salvadoran Civil War with a single mom, many siblings, in a dirt-floored house. When questioned by the park police, his original story was that Christy had accidentally bumped into him while jogging, causing them both to fall down the ravine. When he tried to help her, she started screaming, so he ran away from her. When asked about the attack on Hallie, it was much of a similar story, that they bumped into each other and fell. I mean, obviously he has somewhat of a coordination problem if he's just bumping into all these women when he's out jogging, but anyway, in this case he said that she screamed when he tried to help her up. And in a move that would be seen again as a mistake in hindsight, Gwandiki was shown a picture of Chandra. He admitted to have seen her in the park once, but that was the entire interaction. He saw her, noticed her because she was attractive, but he never saw her again. This little footnote about Chandra was left off the report. The DC police were not told that a man was arrested for attacks in the park or that he admitted to having seen Chandra in the park previously. In 2002, Gwandiki pleaded guilty to the attacks on the women. His story had changed to claim that they were actually attempted robberies, that he hadn't planned on raping them. Except, as you said, Charlie, both had their Walkmans and diamond rings that he made no attempt to grab from them, so look, who knows. While waiting in jail for the case, he made friends with the man, Armando Morales. Initial reports had him an alias because he refused to speak with the media with his real name because he was afraid of retribution within the prison, but his name has come out since. Morales was also Salvadorian and met Guandiki in English language classes in the prison. They talked about their criminal and gang histories and Morales claims that Guandiki confessed to having attacked and killed Chandra by stabbing her and they left the knife in the body. This was before Chandra's remains were found and you may remember that there was no knife on the scene when she was found. Now it seems odd someone who attacked and physically killed a physically fit woman on May 1st would then be overpowered by both the next two people he attempted to attack But one story Morales told to a friend that was recorded, and we will get to that later, it was that Gwandiki didn't mean to or even realise that Chandra had died. The embankment she was down was quite rugged and steep. Perhaps she hit her head or somehow was mortally wounded on the way down. After he robbed her, if that was the goal, he left her there not knowing she would have trouble getting back up on her own. We don't know, but that's the only way I can imagine that this would be accidental. The initial story he told was that this was a murder for hire with Gary Condit as the bad guy. Condit paid Gwandiki and gave him the information of where to find Chandra jogging in the park. Now this seems far-fetched that a man who never met Condit before and could barely speak English would be choosing to commit this crime. Also that Condit would know ahead of time that Chandra would be jogging in that park since she rarely did that. It wasn't part of her routine. We know she looked up trails in the park before she headed out, so she was unfamiliar enough with the park that she needed a map for it. It could be argued that Condit lured her to the park, but what would he say? Come meet me in the park and, oh, by the way, jog there. Investigators were open to the idea that perhaps Gwandiki added this part to make himself seem like a tough hitman type to Morales, who was a known gang member. And since we spent some time on Condit's alibi for May 1st, let's talk about Gwandiki's. First, he did not go to work that day, even though he was scheduled to. Second, after Gwandiki made the papers, another woman named Amber came forward because she recognized him from an incident in the park. On the day Chandra went missing, she was walking through Rock Creek Park in a fairly isolated area. She noticed that a man was walking off the path through some dense brush. And her first thought was, why is he off the path? But she didn't wonder for long. About a minute later, she felt someone approaching her from behind. She swung around and saw a Hispanic man about 10 feet away. But this startled her enough that she took off running off the path and got out of the woods the fastest way she could. If he followed her, we don't know. All we know is he didn't catch up to her. She told her boyfriend about it that night, but started wondering if maybe she was overreacting. He could have just been a guy going for a walk. So she didn't call the police. And honestly, what would she have said? I was on a public path and there was another guy on the path. 
I mean, she was right to listen to her gut and run and not give him the chance to do something worth calling the police over. You know, we often hear about and read how women will ignore this fight or flight instinct because of social pressures of not overreacting or hurting someone's feelings. But don't worry about other people's feelings. If you need to run, run. If you need to fight, fight. You know, run, fight. Don't worry about hurting people's feelings. So back on topic. Public service announcement over. Gwendike and Morales were both polygraphed. There are some significant limits to these polygraphs. Both men needed a translator, but the polygraph examiners were not bilingual, so they had to base it on the translator's translation. So back in a former life, I trained to be a sign language interpreter, and any interpreter will tell you that there is a lot that needs to be conveyed beyond the words. Inflection needs to match, body language, and in some cases, even cultural differences like eye contact need to be accounted for because not all cultures view all body language the same. There is an element of subjectivity that can enter. And polygraphs are subjective to a degree as well because they require an examiner to analyze the data and the subject. And the way words are translated as well could change the whole meaning of the question. There is a lot that could go wrong when you're doing a polygraph this way. So those caveats out of the way... Morales did fail his polygraph on the two biggest questions. Did Guendike tell him he stabbed Chandra and did Guendike tell him that a congressman paid him to do it? Guendike on the questions around Chandra's disappearance denied involvement. The raw data read inconclusive, but again, being subjective in nature, the examiner made the call that he was not being deceptive. So we are three polygraphs into this case. Conda and Guendike passed theirs on the topic of Chandra's disappearance. Morales failed his on the questions of if he had knowledge that either of them were involved. Guendike was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison for the two assaults he pleaded guilty to, and he was sentenced before Chandra was found. After she was found and her signet ring and keys were missing, investigators hoped to find them among Gwendiki's possessions. But by this stage, all of these items had been given away or thrown away by people holding onto them. So if he had either of these items, they were long gone. It wouldn't be until March 3rd, 2009, that it would be announced that Gwendiki was facing trial for Chandra's murder. But it was a solidly circumstantial case. They had no forensic evidence, no confession, and no witnesses. They did have people claiming he admitted it to them, but some of these people had a sensitive to lie, like jailhouse informants hoping to gain favours from the state. Or there were people he could have just been bragging to in order to sound tough. He was really in federal prison as a violent inmate who couldn't overpower and restrain two women long enough to steal their Walkmans, That's not exactly something a man who wanted to prove his dominance would want to tell. Being at the centre of a high-profile murder case, that it looked like he was getting away with, uh, that's bragworthy. Now, I'm not saying he's innocent. I'm just saying he had reasons to confess to these people other than his love of telling the truth. In November of 2010, largely on Morales' testimony that Gwandiki had confessed to him for killing Chandra in the attempted robbery, Gwandiki was convicted. An appeal was filed in 2011, and after a series of hearings, the prosecution stopped opposing the motion for a new trial in 2015. The main point of contention here was Morales and his incentive to lie. This wasn't the first time that Morales had acted as an informant. According to Guendique's lawyers, their defense strategy in the new trial was to present reasonable doubt in the form of Gary Condit. They had statements of two other women who claimed to have had sexual relationships with Condit and that he was into bondage and could be aggressive sexually. Because Chandra's jogging pants were found tied in knots, the argument was that she perhaps died in a sex game in the park. So a man who was so discreet to the point that Chandra had to get off on the wrong floor in his apartment building decided to meet her in the park in the broad daylight to engage in bondage. Or alternatively, she died elsewhere in a bondage game and he disposed of her body without taking away the single piece of evidence of bondage, which would have been her knotted pants. So, I mean, anyway, you cut this specific theory, it doesn't make a lot of sense. 
but Condit does make for good reasonable doubt in this case for anyone else who's being charged for it. In the end, their strategy wouldn't matter. A woman named Babs Prola was living outside of DC when she struck up a friendship with a man living in the same hotel, and he was going by the name Phoenix. Now, Phoenix turned out to be Morales. He was in the area in order to testify in the new trial. He started telling her about his criminal past, and he frankly made her nervous and worried for her own safety. But she was living in a hotel because she had been evicted, and she had nowhere else to go, so it wasn't as though she could just move away from him. So she started recording their telephone conversations. She claimed that in one of the recorded conversations that Morales confessed to her that he lied on the stand. However, when asked to produce that recording, she couldn't. She had hours of recordings of him insisting his story was true, but not the one part where he said he lied. Even without that one recording of him saying he perjured himself, he did enough damage to his credibility, like bragging about his gang affiliations. Prosecutions felt they could no longer prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt, and they were going to have to drop the charges against Guandiki. But they weren't about to let him go. He was turned over to immigration, and the process to deport him began. Now, he fought it for a while, wanting to stay in the United States, but he was deported recently in May of 2017. So the big question left here is what happened to Chandra Levy? Was it Condit? Was it Gwendike? Was it someone else? I don't know that we'll ever know. I think if they could find her signet ring somewhere, if they could find it even in a pawn shop and trace it back to somebody, maybe. But I think there's enough reasonable doubt because mainly because of all that lost forensic evidence I don't think Condit was involved in her murder. I think he was involved in trying to cover his own reputation and made himself look guilty. I agree, because I don't believe Condit was involved. And the main reason for that is in her being murdered, it would only pretty much guarantee their relationship was going to be exposed, which I imagine he definitely didn't want to happen. And then not only is his affair exposed, but then he's tied to a murder that made him look guilty, which is what exactly happened. He had a lot to lose, and I can't imagine him being that stupid, to be honest. And to me, the way he acted after Chandra was killed or went missing, it never struck me as strange. I mean, he's a politician, and of course he's going to try and sweep the affair under the rug. Him distancing himself from Chandra, it doesn't seem strange to me at all. Gary Condit, as predicted, lost the next election. He didn't even make it to the election. He was challenged in the primaries, which isn't terribly common for an incumbent. So let's say I'm a Democrat and a Democrat is in office and he intends on running for re-election. I don't challenge him. It's a member of my own party. But with the scandal running deep and Condit being terribly unpopular because of it, He was being challenged by a member of his own party who did win the primary and went on to win the election. He moved to Arizona where he owned two ice cream shops for a while. He franchised them from Baskin Robbins, but they both later failed. And then in October of 2016, he published a book called Actual Malice. The story is more his story than Chandra's. It's less a book about the case as it's a peek inside the way politicians, the media, and the police worked together or didn't work together in how they handled this case. And of course, it's all told through Condit's filter. He and his wife are still married. Bob and Susan Levy, they have from the very beginning, they have abandoned this idea of putting on a front and telling comfortable lies about how they're doing. They've put their grief out there and they continue to do so. Now, I admire them for doing this because this is real life. They are right out there that they don't believe there is any closure here. Susan made a comment about it being like going through life without a limb. There is no fix for that. You just had to go through it because you have to. Their emotional honesty is undoubtedly helping other people in similar situations. Susan has also turned to art in memorializing Chandra and processing her grief. In 2017, an art show called A Mother's Tears was hosted at a college in Modesto and it features her works. 
Unfortunately, the show only ran to the start of June this year, so it's too late to see it in person at this stage, but you can find some of it online. And as far as the case goes, it's considered open, but not active. Thank you guys for listening again this week. We wanted to do some of our housekeeping. So start with the Patreon shout outs. Carol C., thank you so much. Thank you to Regina and a thank you to Pammy B. Izzy May, thank you for your contribution. And also Allison V. One of the things that Patreon is helping, I, I won't say it funds it completely, but it's helping subsidize some of our travel as we have a lot more meetups planned late this year and next year. And we will announce them as they come up. We'll announce them on the show, but also keep an eye on social media because that's where, you know, we can send out more regular reminders. Also to five-star reviewers, Jug Daddy, Witchy Moon 1028, Allie D. Dodd, and Sarita CC, and Jess with a lot of S's, 3333 and Dodge173. Thank you guys so much for leaving us those reviews. I know it's not always easy to figure that system out. You can find us on Facebook. We're at Insight Pod. We have a group with lots of chatter. We have a page that has not lots of chatter, but you're welcome to like our page, join our group. We have Twitter. You can talk to me directly at Insightful Pod. Instagram is at InsightPod, and that goes right to Allie. We both check the email, and we try to answer every email we can, and that's InsightfulPod at gmail.com. Our website is InsightPod.com. On there, you can find a button for making a PayPal donation. We also have Patreon with different rewards and bonus episodes. If you want to check those out, it's Patreon.com slash InsightPod. And we will see you guys next week.